the night of 24th, when the attacks came, well coordinated and left 200 and about between 212 to 221 people dead. I will tell you 100% of the people that were killed were Christians. And as characteristic as it is of most of such attacks, they were shout, chanting Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, which I think is where the problem comes from. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy, your host, and today we are looking at a tragedy that unfolded in Nigeria over the Christmas holiday of 2023. A lot of Christians aren't aware of this. Major media outlets haven't picked up on it uh, by and large, but there was a, a very significant series of attacks on Nigerians during a holiday where they otherwise would have been celebrating the, the birth of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead, they were having to respond in, with sorrow and heartache and fear, and we need to know more about it as a global church, regardless of where you're listening. We need to be praying for these people, these families, and these communities, joining us to help us better understand and know exactly what happened a few weeks ago. We are joined by Zarihi Yusuf from Nigeria. He's been following this. He's going to help us to better grasp everything that's in play, and we're very grateful to have him joining us today. Zari, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, or would I say, well, maybe pleasure on a sad note, but um, yeah. good to be here. Yeah. Well, we are grateful for your perspective, and would you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and why you are tracking all of this? Well, um, at some point, I developed a bit of an interest in uh, basically listening to some of the messages uh, that usually make the rounds on TV, especially coming from Islamic clerics. And I'd say that that interest came from, I'd say, a bit of a shallow study I did of Sudan, uh, Omar el-Bashir, the Janjaweed. And when I first discovered that actually the people in South Sudan had a different treatment they got from every other person, actually in the line of their ethnicity and their religion. And I began to take parallels with what's uh, going on in Nigeria. But I'd say, as at the time, I built interest in uh, beginning to study the patterns of, uh, you know, messages that were preached in the in mosques, especially with regards to what gov the gov you know the policies of the government. I began to understand that uh, there was something brewing. Uh, especially with the emergence of uh, the terrorist group Boko Haram and all of that. But at, the, as at the time, it was localized in the northeastern part of the country. But uh, looking at what was going on around the Middle Belt particularly, I began fearing because traditionally uh, farmers has, have issues with uh, herders and all of that. But I realized there were explorations being made of capitalizing on this issue to bath something far more dangerous. 
And so that got my interest into uh, basically beginning to look at those things, beginning to try to respond uh, via social media or any gatherings I might have found, enlightening people that look, this is basically the threat we are facing and all of that. And it's been almost a decade and it's been unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. And this is where we find ourselves today. It sounds like you were watching all of this, especially as it played out in other countries around you in Africa, connecting the dots, making parallels and seeing similarities and applying it to this area, which you described as the middle belt of Nigeria. Would you just define for our listeners what the middle belt is? The middle belt of Nigeria is part of that region that goes along the river Niger, where the name Nigeria came from. It's a geographical location. Some people also believe it's also an ideology. But the Middle Belt is a political entity that has suffered subjugation right from independence, or right from before independence. Um, so it's it's the region that has fought, the, or the region that has been subjugated as a result of a lie of a monolithic northern Nigeria. The mon- monolithic in the sense that um, there is the northern part, which is predominantly uh, dominated by the Muslims. And the Middle Belt was so subjugated and such that it was balkanized into smaller regions. For instance, where I come from, we have a population of about 6 million people. And then the size of that region makes up about three states put together, even population-wise, in the southwestern part of the country. But it's still not a state. It's just a region with one senatorial zone. So that's an example of what basically the Middle Belt uh, falls. So it has southern Borno, it's got Plateau State, southern Gombe, it has uh, southern Kebi, Benue State, Niger, Taraba, and Adamawa States. So these regions basically form a belt. When you look at the map, it forms more of a belt. And characteristically, the people there are predominantly Christian. They don't speak the Hausa language even though uh, we've, we've adopted it somehow because um, it's a language in which most of our translation of theological uh, materials have been made. Uh, but basically, it's dominated by ethnic uh, nationalities and um, predominantly Christians, then perhaps traditionalists, and then, of course, there are quite a number of uh, Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. So that basically characterizes the Middle Belt. And there's a strong, uh, although politically, there has been that uh, subjugation, basically, in that region. Some of our audience is going to know this already, but others might just be tuning in and learning this for the first time. You mentioned how you observe the Janjaweed in Sudan, and there's Islamist organizations in other regions of Africa, but how Boko Haram was a, a real threat in Nigeria. Can you just tell us a little bit about who Boko Haram is? I would say, I think I was in my second year in the university when uh, news came that, hey, there's a group Boko Haram. Uh, It's not just a terrorist group. It's got graduates and all of that. So it was just a story. And to a large extent, uh, I would say this, that what actually made the news popular on campus was that they were recruiting. And as at the time, they paid 45,000 naira weekly. And they wanted people who were engineers. They wanted people who had knowledge about uh, global positioning system. They wanted people who were good with computers and all of that. And we felt, hey, come, 45,000 every week. 
I mean, it's a huge sum. And I think, uh, you know, the minimum uh, wage for, uh, you know, civil servants then was just about 18,000 naira monthly. So that was quite huge. And nobody saw the dimension of uh, violence to it. We just believed, as the name implied, Boko Haram, they were just people trying to promote uh, hatred for Western education. So perhaps they had something else. And then all of a sudden, it was just a small group of people. Then uh, the violence, you know, broke out because one of the things they wanted was suspension of the constitution of the Federal Republic of Nigeria in a, in a number of states, they declared, and then the full implementation of Sharia law. Now, once that was obvious, it was clear that that was, um, that was treason, that was an attack on the state because uh, all of a sudden they got into a point where they began you know, forcefully taking girls at the age of possibly 10, 11, 12, 13, marrying them off and all of that. So it was more like we are going to live like an Islamic state in Nigeria. And so the government took drastic measures uh, and the leader at the time was killed. Now, uh, once that happened, they became a bit emboldened. And I would say rather unfortunately, uh, they got the sympathy of quite a number of Muslims who were but first of all, identify with them as fellow Muslims that see them as terrorists, regardless of what they were doing. And so they got armed and uh, they turned on Christian populations. First, then it was Christian uh, clerics they were killing. As at the time, I remember then they would say they killed a pastor here or they killed four pastors. And then the story would go to the news that, uh, no, it wasn't a pastor that was killed. Possibly it was an explosion in the restaurant and the pastor just happened to be there. But it's not as if anybody specifically targeted him. So for almost two years, such stories went on. But it now became obvious that actually the pastors were their targets and they began doing that. So the pastors were killed, their families, and sometimes it's Islamic clerics who preached against their ideology and they kept growing and they kept they began to subdue uh, local governments and all of that. So that was basically what gave birth to them. And I would say they thrived more not because they overpowered the military, but because they got a lot of sympathy from mm. uh, key politicians in the country who were Muslims. So that at least helps us to have a canvas on which to understand better this recent events that tragically unfolded around Christmas um, a couple of weeks ago. Can you just summarize and tell us about what happened there and what you learned? From the night of 23rd, there were over 30 security alerts came from almost 20 different communities in three local government areas. Okay, we've cited movements of these kinds of people. We've cited movements here. Oh, we've had stories here. Oh, no, they've written here. We've seen text messages they would attack. And that went on until the night of 24th when the attacks came, uh, well-coordinated and left, of course, it was there for a couple of hours and left 200 and about between 212 to 221 people dead. In a particular incident, a woman was, was, was you know, a family, a man, his wife, and about two, three kids, they were caught. So while the woman was spared of the pain of being raped or the pain of watching her kids being killed, uh, they made sure she saw how they beheaded her husband and they took the head away and left the body. Uh, so after they left and then people cried for help, nobody came. 
uh, when the attacks were over, they put a call through and said, okay, this is where you'll find the head of this particular individual. And they went there and actually they found it there. Now, um, so that, I would tell you 100% of the people that were killed were Christians. And as characteristic as it is of most of such attacks, they were shout chanting Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, which I think is where the problem comes from. Uh, so basically, they are an Islamic uh, jihad fighting group. And, and we say that because um, in May, in the same state, Plateau state, they launched a similar attack that left 400 people dead in one local government, Mangu local government. They killed 400 people. And uh, that also lasted just a couple of hours. Basically, I think the lesson we, the lesson I'd say I got from that is there is a heightened, you know, concerted, uh, you know, genocidal effort, you know, aimed against these people. And what makes it easy is because they are not armed. They are just uh, peace-loving rural dwellers, you know, uh, raising their families, going to farm, uh, taking care of their churches, doing their evangelism, reaching out one to another and all of that. And so they are quite soft target, I would put it that way. And that's why the, the deaths are massive. And then it affects a lot uh, the older people and then the women and children. And then mostly when you find men in their middle age, they are just those that feel like I can't leave my family behind. So uh, usually, so that's primarily, I think, what has been on. It sounds to me like this is a pattern that's intended to achieve ethnic cleansing, to cleanse this area of the Christian community. Um, these are primarily farmers, and the the people that seem to be behind these attacks, and these attacks have been going on for a long time, are Fulani herdsmen, I believe. Those are primarily Islamic herdsmen, so they're they're nomadic. They have their herds, and they're traveling around the area, and then they would presumably get the land rights. And that's how it's been painted in a lot of the media when you do see this story come up. In, in larger media outlets, almost from a materialistic standpoint, they they seem to paint it as, oh, no, this isn't, that Christians really aren't being targeted. This is just a land dispute. This is just a dispute over agricultural rights. And that's not really true. I think that that story is really becoming harder to maintain. And uh, just to, to say it with a straight face is defying reality right now, even for people that would like to pre preserve that narrative. Is that consistent with what you've you've seen as well there in Nigeria, and is that an accurate representation of what's happening? It's it's a it's a big conspiracy, and that is what has made it very very easy for these killings to continue. Of course, we are well aware that we have herders who come around and they meet the community and they say, "Okay, we'll just hang around here for a year or two, and then we'll proceed." Or so. Um, you get the cow dung and we get the land to stay and all of that. So we know of those people. But we have also seen how that narrative has been basically smuggled into something we refer to as the climate change-induced conflict. In other words, it should be that, um, okay, because there's climate change, so the herders will have to move to a new location and then they begin to fight with farmers over resources. Uh, that is a big lie. That is absolutely a lie. Now, the reason is that 
for about two decades, wherever there are killings in the Middle Belt, I can assure you 99.9% .9 of all of the casualties come from the farmers, and they are all Christians. And I want to assure you until date, not one arrest has been made of this herders. So mm. if we claim it's between farmers and herders, well, to a large extent, we could say, okay, we know the herders here. So bring out those who went and killed people, but nobody knows where they are. So you go to the ones you know who have been in the community for about three, four years, they tell you, we don't know these people. So yes, the only thing we could connect them with the herders is that they are Fulani, they are of the Fulani race, and they are Muslims, but they are trained jihadi fighters. Mm. I mean, uh, there was an attack where about 36 people were killed. I mean, it was basically a standard military-style attack. They went to the community, they destroyed the bridges that connected the communities, uh, and then they went in. So in that particular attack, they did take their time because they cut off the military from actually accessing that community. They killed people. There were some that were put in a room and they were burnt alive, and they took their time and they left. And once they accessed that particular community through the other bridge, they, 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 you know, they bombed it. So, I mean, a set of people that come into the heart of a state capital, because that locality they attacked, that was about um, a year or two years ago, I think, uh, is not far away, it's just about a few kilometers away from the capital. And they did that and they got away. And until date, not one of them has been caught. So it's basically a lie. Uh, and the lie, the aim of that lie is basically to secure the Fulani race, the jihadi fighters, to get to do what they want to do, while the victims will now appear to be uh, the villains. Uh, I, I will tell you how they intend to make the victims look like the villains, perhaps in the course of our conversation. But it's a lie. We do not have farmer had a clash in the middle, but what we have is ethno-religious cleansing. It's a gen genocide. Why don't you just un share about that right now, about that effort to portray the victims as the villains? Let me begin. Let me, let me take you a few steps backward, and I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Kaduna State, the former governor of that state, I, I have nicknamed him the Omar al-Bashir of, uh, of, uh, of Nigeria, basically. The reason is because when the killings began, he listed a number of countries. He mentioned Mali, he mentioned Chad, uh, I don't know if you included, you know, Libya, but all of the the Maghreb. He said uh, they had a cause to kill the Christians because uh, there was a crisis. There was a post-election violence in 2011 when General Muhammad Buhari lost and there were some killings. So he said they have a cause to revenge because they lost some of their people as well. Uh, but everybody knows uh, Christians suffered heavily for that because uh, General Bahamun Buhari is a northern Muslim. Good luck, Jonathan, is a southern Christian. And the belief was Buhari lost because the Christians in the Middle Belt chose to vote for another Christian. So they had to pay the price. So uh, a lot of killings went on. And then a lot of counter killings also went on. So once Nasser Erufai became governor, they flooded the country. And I can tell you, some people would say we have about 50,000 fighters and all of of that, but frankly speaking, I think they are into their millions. Mm -hmm. Now, once they came into the country, they began targeting communities in southern Kaduna. Basically, the strength was not on the plateau as at the time. Now, they would attack a community, they would kill 40, they would kill 50, 
sometimes into hundreds. And the governor never says a thing about it. And the president then described it usually as mutual cycle of violence, that it, they are just two criminal gangs killing each other. So he will not admit it's Fulani people. He will not admit it is, you know, the host communities that are being killed. He will just say they are two criminal gangs. So it went on and on. And why I say they paint, they work hard to paint the victims as the villains is that uh, what Nasr al-Rufai did, once an, a community is attacked, they would immediately identify its lawyers, its medical doctors, its social media influencers. Sometimes arrests would be made, sometimes 70 people, sometimes 50, you know, and then he shuts down any outlet where you could get to know the truth of what's happening. And then after two, three, four days, he begins releasing them, sometimes one, sometimes 10 of them, sometimes six. But as at that time, the media would have been overwhelmed of the story of a hostile community that just don't like to see pastoralists. Yeah. So they come back home to the corpses of their wives, their sons, their grandparents, and they bury them. And they begin to arrest people who post such things on Facebook or Twitter and all of that. So I, I have, I think there's Mekori, there's Stephen Keffers, some of those that went to jail because they spoke about the killings. So a lot of people don't, didn't really know what was happening until people just said, hey, let me damn the consequence. This is what basically is happening. And that went on in Kaduna State. The peak of it was where he told the Christian monarchs in the southern part of Kaduna State, where I come from, that they would need to change the nomenclature of their kingdoms to emirates. Now, the emirate system of rulership, basically, we know is established when Islam conquers a region. So they resisted it. And a particular one, uh, His Royal Highness uh, Galadima Mewada, that's his name, he's a first-class monarch. That's, his monarchy is closest to the northern part of the state. He objected it. Now, what happened, he got, he got abducted one day in his convoy, just a few minutes after a meeting with the state governor, and he was taken away. And a day or two later, he was assassinated. He was assassinated in a very gruesome manner, and they just dropped his body somewhere. Once he got assassinated, you would hope that after a period of mourning or something, another king would be coronated. But then, guess what? Uh, Kajiru Kingdom is no longer headed by a Christian. It's now Kajiru Emirate, so they have an emir now. Uh, so when you try to search Kajiru, the monarch of Kajiru, you may find the story of the one who was assassinated, but as it is now, it's an emirate. Yet uh, nobody said anything about it. He was well celebrated. As a matter of fact, he is nicknamed uh, in Hausa language. They call him Dodang Arnang Kaduna. That means the nightmare of the infidels of Kaduna State. Now, having successfully done that in Kaduna State, he basically championed, you would know now in Nigeria, basically because of the proportion of Christians, Muslims, it's always been either a Muslim who's the president, the vice, a Christian, or the Christian as the president, yeah. as vice, a Muslim. So he championed the Muslim-Muslim ticket. And uh, part of what he said to a Muslim group that sat with him was that uh, whatever it is the Muslim uh, conceive in their mind, he has put it to test in Kaduna State and it's going to happen nationwide. In a state with about almost 50-50 Christian Muslim population. He has made sure that the governor is a Muslim, the deputy governor is a Muslim, the speaker of the House of Representatives, and at least the first six position, according to uh, you know their ranking, are all Muslims. 
and he would ensure that happens at the federal level. Now, I think that emboldened uh, every, you know, the rest of the, you know, the terrorist cells in Benue State and on the plateau. When 400 people were killed and it began to make news, somebody, they said unidentified persons, that they just found two corpses of, they say, Fulani, two Fulani people. You know, everybody was wondering, where would you find the corpses of Fulani people? Who are they? Who killed them? And all of that. And the story of that, those two corpses, I think, no, 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 it wasn't even two. It was just one. It was just one. They said a local chief. There is no Fulani community known that said our chief is missing. But some unidentified person said he got missing. Now the military went to that place. And now I'm giving you figures. They killed between 360, 390 to 400 people in Mongu local government. This attack was in May last year. Now, the military went there, I think, two days after the killings. You would think their tanks and their guns would go into the forest to go after these killers. But they were aimed directly at this community. Just mm. uh, barely 24 hours after the mass burial. And they said, we had stories that a Fulani man got missing. So we want you to surrender your arms or risk being killed. What basically the chief of army staff told them. And the women were there saying, hey, wait, what exactly do you mean somebody got missing? We just buried about 400 people. And the military, in its might, went into the village and they, I think they routed out about four vigilantes who had uh, either machetes or den guns and all of that because people ran away from the communities and they went back I think to protect where they saved, where they kept their grains and some other things. So they brought them out and they shot all of them. They killed them. And the next news we saw was that uh, we've neutralized the bandits. They call them bandits that killed 400 people in Mongolia. Mm. And basically that was what ended the news. As obvious as the lie was, that was basically what ended it. So when you check what the military did in Mongolia in May, you would realize 400 people were killed by jihadi fighters, and then they went to that same community, fetched out the vigilante that were trying to protect, uh, you know, their grains and some of the houses that went burnt. They killed them, and they said they attacked. And that's basically that. That's glaring as it is. That's what happened. And uh, that passed. People talked. Some people said something. Some didn't. And then all of a sudden, in December, it happened. The Christmas Eve attack. And once the Christmas Eve attack happened, I said to some of my friends, uh, I hope they would not want to play the same card they played in Mongu. All of a sudden, they said two corpses were found. Who found the corpses? They said some unidentified persons. Where? They said they found it in Bokos. So they went to the village and then they made arrests. So it, it doesn't really add up. People yeah. just buried 200 people. You went to the village. You didn't go after the killers. And then you ended up arresting quite a number of them. I think some women as well. Because two corpses were found of Fulani people, which yeah. we believe uh, that was an alibi that they planted and all of that. Sure. So it's just so pathetic that uh, the people, and an example is if you would try, you would type Adara militia. Adara is the tribe of that monarchy where I told you the first class monarch was assassinated and then the place was forcefully com converted to an emirate. Mm -hmm. Adara people, they killed thousands of them. But the governor made sure he shot out a narrative that they have a militia that kills Fulani people. Whereas we've always asked, show us a Fulani community where uh, Christians destroyed. Show us a grave where Fulani people were buried. 
show us this, show us that, but there was no proof. And I right. would add lastly that there was a particular killing where, it, I don't know if it was the military or the police, they went and they took the bodies and then someone got Muslim women, dressed them in, uh, you know, that thing they covered their faces with, mm-hmm. took them to the hospital and they went there to mourn for those corpses and they took them on, you know, TV and they said they were Muslims that were killed. But that was all staged. Those were Christian corpses. But because he didn't want the world to know. And uh, that was basically what he did. And we hear rumors that uh, he spends a lot of money on lobbies outside the country. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't really know how, uh, how, how deep that has gone. But it looks as if once the subject comes up in cycles where it should be treated as genocide, there are people uh, who make sure it doesn't uh, see the light of day. We're hearing about this massacre around the Christmas holiday in Nigeria. It's horrific to think about, but what Zari is describing is even worse. It's far worse. This community is still suffering. They're still not getting the help that they need, and there there may even be designs upon them further using pretext to advance other initiatives against them. So this is a big problem. This is a a major threat to the Christian community in the middle belt of Nigeria. And it sounds like there's designs on the Christians in Nigeria, period, across that massive country. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. I was going to ask you why all of these Christians are largely unarmed, but it sounds like not only do they have limited arms, but in some cases they're being disarmed, sometimes in the wake of attacks. Is there any hope that these people might have a better opportunity to protect their communities and their families? I love this uh, dimension you mentioned. I think the part of disarming Christians, but sometimes uh, just before an attack, has happened repeatedly in Kaduna State that shares border with Plateau. Uh, I would remember a time when they came to a community and they said, hey, we need peace, we need to settle down, we need to be in peace with people. And the community would say to them, wait, these people are not herders. We don't fight with herders. These are terrorists. These people are trying to annihilate us. And they bring them to the table and they force these communities to sign something they call a peace pact or so, which would mean they would they may have to cede some parts of their ancestral land to these people. One too many times you'd go to the community and they would say, well, in those meetings they said, you've got a Dane gun, you've got a pistol, you've got machete, you've got bow and arrow, bring it, which shows 
you are ready for peace and all of that. And then barely 24 hours, sometimes in less than 12 hours, these people come in and they kill people. You would hear those stories over and over and over in Benway State, in Southern Kaduna on the plateau. So yes, that happens. And frankly speaking, uh, because we are Christians, by default, we have been raised to love, to accommodate, and to not sit in cycles, to just plot, hey, how do we take over this land? How do we arm ourselves to kill these people? It hardly happens. So the, the best people have done is, okay, let's have these young people. If there's this attack, this is where we escape. Okay, after this attack, who watches over the houses before we return? Because on the plateau, there are more than 10, 15 communities that, that have been occupied by these uh, terrorists. Some have been renamed, occupied and renamed. Yes, so mm -hmm. that has happened. So, um, so basically, I can, I can tell you the Christians at this stage are just helpless. And oh. that's why the best we've done so far is to use uh, the media, to use protest to speak. But as far as defending ourselves is concerned, we can't do it because all of the communities that have attempted to just build, even if it's a small vigilante of 10, 20 men, have faced a strong attack from the military. They don't even give room for that. So if these Christians are unable to defend themselves, they're unarmed, who is arming the Fulani militant herdsmen? Frankly, I would tell you um, there is a man, or there was a man, Obadiah Melafia. He made a video about some findings from some of these killers who either changed or got caught. And part of the things he said was, during the COVID lockdown in Nigeria, there was heavy movement of military hardware for these criminals, these terrorists. Well, not long after he made those revelations, uh, people came for his life. And then uh, he got sick somewhere, flew into the capital city for medical attention. We don't know what went wrong, but the next minute uh, we were told that he died. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't really know, but... Um, it's our belief it wasn't just natural cause because he said a whole lot of things. Yeah. And he did mention that there was a sitting governor as at the time, before the election, there was a sitting governor that particularly used government funds, taxpayers' money to fund these groups. So they have local collaborators who fund them. And we believe there are also international, you know, there are countries that perhaps will be linked to, the, to sponsoring terrorism that sponsor them because they've got quite sophisticated weapons. I think uh, sometime last year or uh, the year before last, they were able to shoot down a, a, a military jet. And that means a whole lot. So someone telling you he just he's just a header, but he's got the technology to shoot down a, a, you know, a fighter jet. I mean, that says a whole lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they did that last year. So they are heavily funded. They've got local politicians uh, that use a whole lot of money to do that, and they've got international uh, support as well. I know that these topics are not commonly covered when we're listening to ministry reports of Christian persecution or developments overseas, but this is a situation that Nigerian Christians are facing in the north of that country and, and across that land. This is how we need to be praying. This is a, a massive upheaval that they're dealing with, and we just need to pray for them, and we need to look for ways that we can stand with them and, and assist. I have a question about the, the timing of these attacks. Do you sense that 
the Christmas time period was used intentionally? Was was it done to to maximize the amount of emotional pain that would be inflicted? Yes. And let me give you an example of um, such an attack that happened in 2022 in December. This time around, it was in Kaduna State, uh, barely maybe 50 kilometers from my hometown. Uh, less than that, actually. They attacked this particular community. 41 people were killed. And then they burnt down the whole community. I mean, every house in that community was burnt down. And I kept wondering the number of people that came, how long it took them to do it. The reason they do so is because it gives a variety. It, it brings variety to the victims because we have this tradition of going to the village, you know, for Christmas. And so a lot of the people that they killed in that particular attack uh, were people that came from different parts of the country for the holiday, little children, uh, wives that were just dropped off by their husbands for the holiday, uh, kids that were dropped with uncles for the holiday and all of that. So it's quite deliberate. It's quite deliberate. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2022. And years before then, there have been such strategic strikes just when uh, the villages are populated with people from different parts of the country uh, for Christmas. And the same thing happened. Now, yeah. you may not know, it wasn't just on the plateau they killed people. You know, after that, they went to just a day or so after Christmas, they went to Kaduna State and killed 41 people in about three different local governments. Yes, they did that. Uh, we almost saw that as a diversionary attack, perhaps to shift attention away from the 200 they killed on the plateau. But it, it appears nobody is even talking about Kaduna State anymore. Right. You know, but they killed 41 people in Kaduna just, I think, about 48 hours after they killed uh, 200 in the plateau. Yeah. So it's deliberate. It's deliberate. Again, for our listeners, this this situation is is critical. You really have probably north of 250 casualties spread out over a few different regions in the north of Nigeria. Um, not a lot of attention is being paid to it. It is devastating to have these types of attacks wreak havoc in your communities around Christmas when you're emotionally excited and you're excited to be with family, you're excited to celebrate one of the most holy days in the Christian calendar, and all of a sudden family members, friends are horrifically injured or, or killed, and just the emotional trauma is, is just devastating for us to even think about if we were to endure that in our own families, what that would be like. That would be horrific. This has happened in many, many countries. I've seen this happen in Iraq with church bombings around Christmas or Easter, I've seen this in Pakistan as well. So this is a, a tried and true tactic, and it, it is it does pay dev devastating results for those that are are trying to maximize the impact of those attacks. Um, so this is a very serious situation in Nigeria. Nigeria might be the most heavily persecuted country for Christians. Uh, the scale of physical persecution boggles the mind. This is like Zari has been saying. This has been going on for over a decade. And very little attention has been done. Uh, I don't know why other governments aren't more concerned about this. I don't know why others aren't raising uh, the alarms. But we need to be in sincere and sustained prayer for the Christians of this region. We need to pray that this evil would fall upon itself. That those who are right now probably planning further attacks, we, we pray that they would repent 
um, that they would come to Christ, that they would be stopped in their evil planning, that they would be thwarted. But these Christians in Nigeria are not alone. We're a part of this body with them, and they're hurting right now. This limb of the body is hurting, and we need to be praying for them. What else, Zari, do you think it's important for us to understand about all of these developments? Well, <clears throat> what's important for you to understand is um, I've had occasions to go to the office of the United Nations, even though for a completely different reason. And I, I asked a question, you know, as an aside, I said, are you aware? I, I think we just had a meeting with the resident coordinator of the United Nations. Um, and I asked him, I said, are you aware of the killings of the genocide in Middle Belt? And he said to me, oh, the farmer had a conflict. And I said, no, there isn't any such thing. And a lady took me to her office, introduced me to another lady. And the other lady who came now said, you know, uh, I'm in charge of um, all of this climate change induced crisis and all of that. And I said, well, is it somebody misinforming you about this? Or there's a particular reason why you bent on describing this as such? Now, um, I don't know if because it's 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 a global jihad movement, so their operations are not in isolation, and that's why I said once I got interested in Sudan, I began to fear for my country, and to be quite honest with you, it's just the same playbook that yeah. is being repeated, but in this case, a bit more sophisticated. Because I'll tell you, if Omar El Bashir of Sudan had this idea of the manner in which it's playing in Nigeria, there's every likelihood he would still be killing Christians in South Sudan, and nobody would still know. Now, um, my my concern is the moral obligation of organizations like the United Nations. I will cite two examples. There was a time uh, the military did a drone strike. There was a drone strike on a tourist group along the border of two states, Nasarawa State and Benue State. Now, I think more than about 23 or 24 of these people were killed. But then all of a sudden, the military did a U-turn and said it was an error that the people that were killed were not terrorists, that they were that it was a mistake. They killed Padas. They killed pastoralists. And all of a sudden, the United Nations reported it. It was captured and reported as genocide against the Fulani people. And once I picked that up, I, I asked myself, wait, these folks have killed hundreds over the past few months, the past few weeks. How come just an action, a single action by the military to take them out has turned to look like a genocide on them? Now, that passed, and I think uh, just before Christmas, there was another drone strike. And the military said they've coordinated with other security agencies you know, with their intelligence to identify those targets as terrorists. And they struck and they killed, I think about 80 of them. But all of a sudden, big politicians, big monarchs and all of that went there and said, these are innocent pastoralists that were killed. And so it was condemned. And the military began to double back. But then I think to a large extent, they came out again and said, well, we might admit some, you know, civilian casualties, but we had intel that these were terrorists. Now, it was along the same axis. I told you earlier, they shot down uh, uh, an Air Force jet. 
It was along that axis they have attacked the Nigerian Defense Academy. They've killed military officers and abducted some. So the region, that particular place where the attack took place, is notorious for such killings. Very sophisticated uh, uh, cell of uh, you know that those uh, jihadists. So it's making it difficult for us now. That I'm, I'm bringing that perspective so that you understand how difficult it is for us to fight it. And it seems, as far as the Middle Belt is concerned, we are just good enough to be killed. But any terrorist that runs, runs out of luck, there, are, uh, there seem to be strong forces that come out to make him an innocent pastoralist. And then mm. the international community tends to take part more in that. And that's a big problem for us because before one of the terrorists dies, we, we would have buried about a thousand or more. But each time the military decides to just take an action against them or the community resists them, they become innocent pastoralists and people yeah. see them as victims. So yeah. that's a very dangerous turn for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to be a challenge for Christians uh, around the world to recognize that nuance and that that could feed into how news reports are generated. Like you're hearing, there is an organized, coordinated effort to make sure to shape this narrative in a certain way. It, a lot of this is a false narrative that's coming out. There, there are a lot of lies involved in this, and we as Christians need to live not by lies. This is a lot. This is challenging. This Christmas attack in northern Nigeria is really just the tip of the iceberg as far as the problems being faced by these Christians. So please pray for them. Please help spread the word about their plights and what they're going through. However that might be, uh, share this information. But we need more and more people. We need we need small groups, men's groups, women's groups. We need entire churches, local fellowships uh, to be praying and interceding for these vulnerable Christians in northern Nigeria. And we pray that what the enemy intends for evil, God will just use for good. We pray that his church will be strengthened, equipped, encouraged, filled with joy, and even expand in these areas where it's under attack. So... Zari, this is not information that we get a lot of. We really appreciate you joining us to share this perspective. Um, no doubt you are uh, standing in the gap and taking risks just to share this information too, and we're profoundly grateful. And we are going to work to see what avenues are best for us to, to help in this situation that is unfolding in northern Nigeria. Uh, thank you so much. How else can our listeners learn about you and your work or follow what's going on? Okay, I'm I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I think of, I spend more time on Twitter, and um, basically, like I said, the Middle Belt Patriots, uh, we we try to get, we try to reach to, to hit those communities. Not long after any attack, we assess the situation. We try to look at the humanitarian needs, and uh, well, I wouldn't give a, the government a scorecard when it comes to reaching out to the affected communities or even resettling them back in their homes. So we're trying to see how uh, how we could reach out in that regards with um, humanitarian needs immediately and then perhaps uh, materials to either rebuild their homes or either to set up their schools or get their healthcare, uh, you know, dispensaries or clinics working. And then um, we try to see uh, platforms like yours where, uh, you know, we will be able to tell the truth of what basically is, is happening. It's scriptural. Thou shall know the truth and the truth, you know, shall set free. And until that is known, likely we might get to a point where you might fly into Nigeria and you would 
you would go to communities maybe just 10 years ago you know dominated by christians but now uh, you would have terrorists living everywhere with their wives and their children because basically that's what they do now they used to move alone with arms but now they move with women and children so when they kill uh, you find them praying five times prayer and so it looks like a normal community and you take out one of them and uh, everybody comes out saying they're innocent so uh, really we would need support prayer spiritually we would need moral support we will need platforms like this one to say the truth we would need uh, material support financially to reach out to uh, these people and uh, of course to get to engage even our local media to uh, fight this very uh, evil narrative well god bless you and i pray that god would empower you to continue to have an impact and a growing influence over this and once again we just really thank you for your time yeah thank you so much for the opportunity Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.